Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Hi, this is Michael Waits from ATP Stories, and I am with Martin Daphner. Martin is the founder and president of Emerge Innovation. Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Michael. Where Where are you exactly? Uh, I'm speaking to you right now from Shenzhen, but I'm based in Shanghai. I've been there for about 12 years now. Wow. How did you get to China? Well, you know, I've always worked in the in the innovation ecosystem. So I came out of school as a chemical engineer and um, and went to work for Procter Gamble for about ten years. Uh, in, always in innovation, product and and business model innovation in the United States. In the U.S., yeah, and and um, ended up going to work for a B two B because I wanted to see some of the world and um, and they moved me to Shanghai back in two thousand and six to start up their Asia-Pacific Innovation Center. I was with a company called Avery Dennison, based out of Pasadena, California. Right. Spent about 10 years with Avery Dennison, a little in, in Pasadena, and then uh, three or four years in uh, in the Netherlands, and uh, then came out in 2006, like I said, to start up the Innovation Center here in China. But what's, and, the, view, um, what's the view around an innovation center, right? So you're working at Avery Dennison, right? So Avery Dennison is what, a chemical and sort of packaging company? Do you want to explain a little yeah. bit about what they do and then how they perceive innovation and why they wanted to have an innovation center in China? In China, yeah, yeah, good question. Yeah, absolutely. They're, uh, let's say a material science and packaging company. Right. Um, and, and, you know, they saw a huge market growing in China and a lot of their customers going to China uh, and wanted to be there for their customers and understood that, the market in China was evolving differently. It wasn't going to simply do a copy-paste of products from the West into China. And so innovating the right solution in China for China was a big part of the mandate for the innovation center that we, we kicked off in 2006. So when you arrived, there was nothing there? They did not have an innovation center at all? And had you, And if that was the case, had you ever built anything from scratch before? Uh, I had, no, it was my first time building uh, something from scratch. You know, I'm a chemical engineer, so right. we don't we don't get those job offers too often. <laughs> um, and, and that was that was part of the the allure, if you will, for me. Um, and and yeah, it was it was clearly the mandate when we got started to to bring China into uh, the the innovation world, if you will, for our industry. Uh, nobody else in our industry was doing much innovating at that time. And was there an innovation center for for your company in California or in the United States at the time? In other words, was this a model they were trying to replicate or did they just say, look, everything in China is different. We need to send somebody out there to just innovate from there because we don't know what that market's going to be like. I'd love to understand the genesis of that as well. And if, like you said, you didn't want to copy paste stuff, but was there already an innovation center outside of China? No, there was a Pasadena, an innovation center in Pasadena. So this was the second. Uh, and, and the reason for China was that that was the, the market that was most different from the Western market. Uh, and also obviously in 2006, a market that was growing like crazy. Uh, so it was an area that we frankly weren't growing as fast in as we had expected based on the market growth. Right. Uh, and, and there was a clear understanding that we in, in Pasadena, so to speak, weren't close enough to the market and the customers to know what to make for them, what to create for them. Yes. Yeah, so how did you see business change 
once you moved out, sort of built this innovation center, did you, were you then able to more easily, and I use that term in relative terms, right? Were you more easily able to sort of participate in the market growth that was occurring in China? And I guess the follow-on question there, and this is maybe more interesting to me as well, is were you innovating on any sort of products or processes or sort of business models that then got exported back to the United States? Yeah. So a couple parts to, to the answer. What what I learned when I came out here to do this, you know, they, Avery was, was really nice. They gave me a big check and a piece of land and said, go, you know. Uh, but they also said, this check's got to last you for about 18 months, and then you need to be able to get the funding that you need to sustain yourself from the local businesses that you support in Asia Pacific. And so we had a mandate at the Innovation Center to, to not be corporate overhead, but to be very relevant on a quarterly basis to the general managers around Asia that we supported. And that changed the way we thought about innovation. We did want to export to the West. It did take us, Michael, about five years to realize that dream. But before I left and handed it over to my successors, we were exporting innovations back into the West in new packaging designs and and packaging technology. Uh, But something interesting happened in that in that transfer and, and turned me into an entrepreneur. Um, because I was no longer kind of part of the corporate overhead and, and became a little bit of an entrepreneur that had to get, had to sell, right? I had to get funded every year at annual operating plan time by the general management managers that we supported. Um, it, it changed the way I thought about innovation. Uh, and frankly, I, I, I fell in love with the challenge of being that relevant. Uh, I think innovation oftentimes is is in the corporate context, um, is too far away from the market. And, and that's one one of the challenges that corporate innovation programs have. Uh, but the other thing that happened is, is I realized there was an interesting gap, uh, cultural and capability gap in China, particularly to address some of these challenges. And, and innovation is like any other business skill. Uh, you, you you get better at it when you practice, when you exercise those innovation muscles. And uh, because of the the education protocol and pedagogy in in the East, particularly China, um, and and to some extent in places like Vietnam, Korea, um, and because of the rapid growth of these markets without innovation over the last two to three decades. Uh, we've not exercised those muscles, those innovation muscles. Uh, we haven't needed to. It hasn't been part of our education curriculum. And so there's a tremendous amount of creativity and and innate capability to innovate. But the practice of it just hasn't been there. The, the best analogy I can think of is, you know, take some really tall, athletically gifted um, people in, in – Oh, uh, in in China, and and give them a basketball. Right, they're not going to play NBA ball just because you handed them a basketball and they're athletically gifted and very tall. Uh, you, you've got to practice playing that game to get good at it and play it at at a professional level. Innovation is the same. You've got just because you have the innate skills, 
doesn't mean you're going to be immediately playing that at a professional level. Right. And you've, you've just introduced a whole bunch of really new concepts for me. And I want to unpack that a little bit if it's okay. So when you went to university, right, you must have mm -hmm. been kind of a math and science guy in high school because otherwise you wouldn't have gone to school. You went to a technology style university, right? I mean, Georgia Tech. Yeah. I mean, Georgia Tech. I mean, are there better tech universities in the United States? Probably not. Not for what that university does, right? And you're there as a young man and you're studying, but you're probably not having this thing in the back of your mind where you're going to be an entrepreneur in China. <laughs> probably not. Right, but you're chuckling, you're chuckling, but this is the part that's actually really interesting to me because you said you got there, you did some stuff, it took you about five years to innovate enough to sort of send those innovations back to the United States, and then there was a transformation in you. And that transformation was both on the sales side where you realized – Okay, and I'm I'm you know paraphrasing for you, so you tell me when I'm wrong, right? I'm not always right, but you're like, okay, I've been a scientist and I've wanted to be in science my whole life, but this business bug is kind of biting me now, and how do I sell things, right? Because like you said, you're not part of the overhead anymore. Now you have to go out and sell things, and even if you're selling internally, you still have to sell to the general managers of the businesses that you're supporting, but you also said you started feeling like an entrepreneur. And this, to mm. me, sounds like the beginning of a really interesting change in you. And did you ever look back on your sort of experience in college and think, you know, while you're in China, and think, wow, I wonder what it would have been like? I mean, the science is great, right? And should I have studied a little bit more about business and economics? Or did you do that as well? But it sounds to me like mm -hmm. this transformation surprised you as much as it surprised anybody else. Absolutely. Um, the, you're absolutely correct, Michael. And and. I wasn't expecting if you had asked me when I was 32 years old if I'd ever own my own business and be a consultant I would have said heck no you know there's no way <laughs> where, where are you no from? way it, where, where are you from originally yeah I grew up more or less in the Midwest Cincinnati got it okay uh, so what one thing I, I realized in grad school I went to graduate school and I realized okay I do want to work close to the market there was a, a thrill or a satisfaction a sense of satisfaction that I got by seeing technology turned into products that people bought and used every day right so that was always there uh, but I also really enjoyed and appreciated the security of working for a big company like a P&G or an Avery Dennison and a monthly paycheck right. and the absence of that security frightened me deeply um, something happened and when I came to China and, and needed to sell that I suddenly realized, you know, I can actually go out and get people to pay me for a skill set. Um, and and that that in combination with, by the way, I happened to be getting my MBA in China right around that same time, uh, gave me a sense of confidence that that I I was at least willing to try to to take some additional risk and not be so dependent upon the monthly paycheck. Um, and then the final, the final element to that, I think there are three things that enabled me or, or motivated me to go outside. One was the, the confidence of being able to sell and understanding business in a broader sense through an MBA. Um, uh, the, the, the force nature of the position that I have that forced me to go sell. Um, and then finally, I saw this need in the marketplace that really, really appealed to me. And it was it goes back to the muscles, the innovation muscles and exercising those muscles. Uh, I have always loved people development. And and one of the reasons that I was able to do reasonably well in the corporate world and get opportunities is that I, I did a, a good job developing talent because I, I enjoyed it. I found it so 
enjoyable and satisfying. Get to to see people be capable of doing more and more on their own, and to see them feel that is extremely rewarding feeling as a manager, as a leader. Yeah, I mean, there's a real deep. I was having this conversation with someone today around lunchtime, and there's a deep satisfaction for me of being able to sort of help somebody achieve something, and particularly they, when they didn't think they could achieve it prior to that conversation. You know this, so I can tell by the way you're chuckling, and I love this whole concept of personal transformation, right? Um, mm. And it's great like it, to be in your 30s and gain this new level of confidence and then to be able to take the risk and go out and start something new. And I, I always say like people exist with a fallacy that the person they meet, right? So I'm meeting you today. And if we weren't meeting under these circumstances, I would presume you're always the same person, right? And that's this thing of, I call it like the fallacy of now. And mm. in reality, like people go through development stages and they're not the same person they are today. And they're not, haven't been that same person for their whole lives in most cases. And what you're telling me is that's very true with you. And that all of the things that happened to you to lead up to that whole feeling of, you know what, I think I'm willing to take the risk give up that sort of monthly paycheck and the stability of working for a Procter & Gamble, right, or Avery Dennison, and just say, I think there's a market gap. I like this concept, too, of market gaps, right? So you see a gap in the market and say that there's, you mentioned this right at the beginning of the conversation, there's sort of a cultural gap in the ability to have to innovate because up until then, the economic growth in China had just been driven on the fact that there was so much to do and so much to accomplish that in a way there wasn't time for innovation, right? Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. When I first came even to open the Innovation Center in 2006 and went around and talked to customers and, you know, sort of tried to get them excited about all this cool stuff we could do for them, um, most of the customers, the vast majority, Michael, would, would look at me and say, Marty, I love your excitement and your engagement, but I tell you what I really need. I really need you guys to ship the product that I'm asking for every time on time at quality. Right. And I know, I know that I'm tripling my order quantities for you three weeks before the order goes out. <laughs> I, I know that I'm doing that to you, but that's what's happening to me. So, and I need you guys to help me deal with that, you know, high volatility. So go innovate around that. <laughs> right. But that's um, bi business you know, process, right? So do you want to talk at all about innovating around business process and business planning? I'd love to. I mean, I mean that is the nature of of what we do, particularly in B two B. In B two B, innovation is not really about technology, although those two words get used so often, simult nearly simultaneously, that that when you say the word innovation, many people automatically think tech. Yeah, and they uh, they think of smaller, faster microchips, but that's actually a fallacy as well. It is exactly correct. Uh, you know, the real innovation is is a. Real innovation is about finding that next value proposition that is even a better fit with what the customer wants. And we call it in the innovation game, we call it product market fit. Uh, in the lean startup world, we call that product market fit. And that's what innovation is all about. It's finding a, an even better product market fit. And tech is sometimes a part of that, but does not have to be. So when you finally made the decision to sort of leave the corporate world, I mean, there must have been some amount of trepidation, but in a way, and I've, I've done it, right? So I kind of know what this feels like. Once you do it, and again, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I, fe I felt like once I did it, I was almost unemployable again back inside of a large organization. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not because yeah. I couldn't do the work, 
but because there was this sense, and again, it's like sports, you say, like, I feel like I had been running a race, you know, with my hands tied behind my back, and now that my hands weren't tied behind my back anymore, I wasn't going to go back into that race with my hands tied up again. Yeah. I'm just curious how you felt, and, and how long did it take you to sort of get used to the concept of not having the monthly paycheck and having to earn all that stuff on your own? And it's a little meta, right? But like, in a way, you have to innovate around that as well, no? You know, you're absolutely correct. I mean, one of the things that 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 I had an advantage making that transition in that I had developed, you know, twenty. I, I left the corporate world after about twenty-two years, always doing innovation, so to speak. So I had all those tools and knowledge. I just need to practice what I had been preaching as in my own business, look right. at my own business and say, who is my customer? What's my segmentation? What's the value proposition? How do I validate that? So use all the thing. So that helped. But the question you asked around how long did it take me? It was about 18 months of um, uh, mental shift, you know, watching the, the cash flow go, you know, living in a, a world of negative cash flow <laughs> after, you know, I never lived there for you know since I graduated from university. Right. I had been positive cash flow every month, and, and increasing now, cash flow know, probably, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and only due to that did I have the reserve to to weather that storm. Um, and you know, I, I, at the end of the day, I've got the entrepreneurial story. I mean, I had a home and a mortgage uh, on the beach in California. Right, even though I was in China, I was hanging on to this house in California and renting it out. Loved the place to death. I had to sell that. You know, I, I couldn't sustain that as an entrepreneur. So there, there are sacrifices, real tangible sacrifices you've got to make in, in many, in most cases that I'm aware of. Um, but after I started to, after I found and learned my way to a positive cash flow and changed, literally changed the way I lived my life. Um, and it, you, you do, you start to feel like, you okay, I know how to do this. Uh, and I, I know how to control my costs and I know how to I've I've tweaked my value proposition. Now, you know, I'm on pivot number four and it's starting to get traction, you, you know, so right. you get there. You, you if you follow the, the the rules of the game, so to speak, and use the tools you've got and listen to the marketplace when it's talking to you, um, then you can figure this out. And like I said, it took me about 18 months before I was really on my feet and was starting to put some money back in the bank instead of just taking it out. Right. Um, and, and then I said, okay, yeah, let's, we, we can do this. Uh, and then there was about another year of um, modest, modest growth, meaning you know, we, every month we, we, we were in the black, but we weren't exactly building up a lot of money to invest, reinvest into the business, uh, so to speak. And, and then after about a year of that, year three and four, uh, we really started to hit the stride. And I, I think it's hard to say, did the market change radically or did we just finally hit that value proposition sweet spot where everybody was, was open to buying? So what, you what do you think, though, in retrospect? I think it's a combination of, of – of the two, uh, I think you you find the market that's ready to buy by pivoting and tweaking the value proposition. Um, and if you're really listening and paying attention, you you're not on the tail end of that, 
right? You're not coming in. You're you're looking for where's the market going. It's it's like catching a football on the run. Right. You 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 you're running. You're watching where the ball's going. You're paying attention, and you're there when the when the ball's at the right spot. Your hands are there to catch it. Right. It's that kind of thing. But you're also adjusting your speed, right? So you can see the ball in the air. You're looking at the arc. You're actually doing a mental calculus and saying. I need two more steps on this thing, and if I don't speed up a little bit, I'm not going to get there. But then again, if you misjudge it or if the light's in your eyes, you've got to slow down a bit. I, I, I really – I think that's a great analogy actually. Um, yeah, speed and direction, right? And yeah. you know, you, you think you know the, the play says the ball is supposed to land over here, you know, but – uh, there's a defender over there, so the quarterback threw it a little bit, you know, high and outside, and you gotta you gotta go adjust. Exactly. So now we're talking about emerge innovation, right? Okay. And this has been around for what three years? A little bit more than three years now. Correct. And I'm really curious. And you're still in China, right? Like you said, you're in Shenzhen now. You're based in Shanghai. What was the reason why you decided to stay in China as opposed to? And this is a weird way to say this, right? Moving back to the United States, it's a really weird question for me too, right? I haven't lived in the United States since 1990. And if someone says to me, moving back, like the U.S. that I left doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So I wouldn't be Absolutely. moving back. I'd actually be moving to the U.S. And I feel like reverse <laughs> culture. So, but you tell me if you think I'm wrong, right? Because you probably go back to the States more often than I do. But I submit heavily that culture shock is one thing. You're prepared for it because you know you're going to a different place. Reverse culture shock is shocking because... Your expectations are, you know, you go back to Cincinnati, it's the same Cincinnati you left when you were a kid, even though theoretically you know it's different. Your expectations are that it's the same, and it's really, really different, I think. I, I would agree with you, Michael, and I, I'm i different too. Yeah, very. You know, so, um, I, yeah, why stay in Shanghai and then also go back, you know, kind of the same time, why not go back to the U.S.? Yeah. There's always more than one part to that answer, but – from a let me talk first kind of career job part business answer and then Please. there's a personal answer as well okay uh, the business answer is that uh, the the market need for what I do and what I love to do which is work with people and teams to get innovative ideas to market and that involves these tweaking and pivoting and you know running to catch the ball stuff I love doing this um, and the need for that in China was greater uh, the the availability of you know 20 plus year experience to help do that was less so I had more of a differentiation factor in China but I also kind of fell in love with how it's how it goes down in China hmm. what so, do you mean? well you know everybody tends to think about Silicon Valley when they think about entrepreneurship right um, and Silicon Valley has a certain kind of entrepreneurship. Uh, the the folks that I know that are serial entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley have developed a skill set to be really good at uh, finding really interesting value propositions and increasing the valuation of those business models relatively quickly so that the folks that invested in the first round um, – are, are making even more money because when it's valuated shortly thereafter, it's even a higher valuation and the entrepreneur um, cashes out oftentimes at that next level. So they're basically increasing the valuation by getting more users or whatever the key metric is. In comes the next investors who buy up the shares at a higher price point 
and you you make a, a capital gain. This is entrepreneurship in the Silicon Valley. It's about increasing the valuation of the idea. Okay. Uh, entrepreneurship in China is <laughs> it, it, it's on a much smaller scale. So the guys in Silicon Valley, when they when they go for funding, they go talk to an investor. You know, in, investors aren't really interested in in five million. You know, investment or ten million, you get start thirty million starts to get interesting to a VC or private equity investor, uh, and so startups are often looking for you know multiple millions or multiple tens of millions of dollars. Um, in China, startups are looking for about fifty thousand US, right? And they'll go get their first customer with fifty thousand US. In and this, the entrepreneurs in China most often are are very passionate about solving a problem. They've got a, a, a business model or a technology that solves a problem for a very niche part of the market or a very niche customer, and they're really passionate about getting that solution to market. Uh, not necessarily passionate about increasing the valuation of the idea or even talking to investors, frankly. You know, talking to investors is something that they have to do, perhaps as a necessary evil, um, but it's not anything they're really excited about. So I much prefer the entrepreneur supporting and helping the entrepreneurs uh, in China because it's just a better fit with what I'm passionate about. Uh, and, and so that was the, the business reason why I decided to stay in China. Uh, it was a better fit, frankly, with what I love to do. And I was able to differentiate myself versus local competition more easily. Do you have, and I, I want to get to the personal part in a second, but did you see over the past like five or 10 years, I know you started your company three or four years ago, but have you seen over the past five or 10 years, people like you are coming into this space and also trying to teach their own version of innovation or is that just starting now? That's a great question, Michael. It, it's definitely increased now. Uh, in the last 12, 18 months, there's a lot of folks doing what I do, a lot more. Um, and and yet there are some key buckets, I think, that have been around for a while. So there have been accelerators right. uh, and incubators all over China. In fact, I think it's it's kind of ridiculous. I, I You know, four or 5,000 incubators at last count. Uh, and, and there's lots of folks getting into that business game and the business models there differ. Uh, some of these incubators are a real estate play. It's really a shared office. Uh, many of them are an, an, an investment play, meaning they, they monetize as an equity owner of the startups that they support. Um, and, and then there are very few that do what I do, which is really monetize on corporate services and use a portion of that monetization to provide uh, incubation and acceleration services to startups who frankly don't have money. And I get that. Um, and, and we, I don't want equity. Um, I, I, I really don't want to own part of a startup, any startup, because as, as I provide a service to corporate, if I am part owner in any startup that I might be connecting to a corporate, there's a potential conflict of interest. And to, to the extent that the corporates would been, begin to question my motivation. Right. In other words, why are you introducing? Yeah. Why are you promoting yeah. this service that we need, but you're also an investor and equity owner in it, right? There is a, there is, exactly. there's a potential of a perceived conflict of interest, whether or not, and for somebody with integrity, 
Um, it's just the perception of conflict of interest that is actually in some cases more important than an actual conflict of interest, which is exactly. noble to be fair. Yeah, um, yeah, no, I get, I get where they're coming from. I used to totally. sit on the corporate side of the table. I get it. But so do you also provide services to startup companies, even if they don't have money? So you'll still provide those services, but you won't take equity in them or you just won't provide them the services to begin with? No, I do. And, and, and you know, my passion here is to kind of, like I said, exercise these muscles and, and throughout the ecosystem and get people better at playing this game. Uh, because I think China's got a lot to offer the world and, and the Chinese consumer. Um, and, and I want to help evolve that and mature that. So I partner with an outfit here in Shanghai uh, called Xnode, uh, and and they are um, a startup accelerator program and also a shared office. So they you know they have their physical facilities and their co- physical community, um, but also work with startups that, that aren't necessarily a, a part of or a, a renter in their facility. And we run an accelerator program and at the moment do not charge the startups for that uh, and are able to provide that because we can monetize on the corporate side. Um, so we, we bring some of that revenue to help support the development of the ecosystem. How does, how does that work? You say, and I'm just curious, but you say you can monetize that on the corporate side because the corporates then will use the services of the startup to charge for like a different business lines or expansion of services? Yeah, we basically run the startup accelerator more or less at a loss. Uh, and so the we use the profit, some of the profit that we get from the corporate services to uh, support the startup accelerator. And the idea there is that, you know, part of the reason we're valuable to corporates is that we do work with startups. And, and so we bring that experience and that knowledge and sort of that startup mentality or approach uh, to the corporate uh, innovation program work that we do. I'll give you a quick example. Sure. A quick example. So we're working with uh, an FMCG company, a U.S.-based FMCG company in China, and they had this really interesting idea um, uh, about uh, enabling uh, some, some new product performance, and they wanted to go to market online through an online channel. Okay, they had the product. Uh, they had done the testing and done some uh, initial consumer use testing, use case, consumer, uh, concept and use testing. Everything was looking great, and uh, they were blocked by uh, the brand, uh, this relatively you know high image brand, who said, "On this thing, you know, we, we're not so sure we want to go online with with this. We're we haven't done uh, all the." the consumer testing we might like to do and is this is what this can what this product is doing is it completely consistent with our brand image in china in this particular segment etc cetera, etc cetera. all the kind of stuff that a big brand needs to worry about right mm-hmm. but a startup would never worry about no. and you know we walked in the door and looked at this it took us about 15 minutes to say we'll just get rid of the brand like take your packaging, literally white label it, or, or you know, we'll, let's make up a brand and let's let's make up a new URL. You know, let's 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 go buy a website that'll cost us ten bucks, right? Let's go buy a domain name, yeah, uh, that'll cost us ten bucks, and let's go. And they sort of looked at us like, oh wow, that's a really great idea. It is. You just call it like MartyStuff.com and just see if it sells, right? If the exactly. product is really it's, good, yeah, you can do that. 
Right. So a startup would never get stuck there. They were stuck there for like two or three weeks. And, and they, they called me up and said, hey, come in. Can you just come talk to us about this for a little while? That's the kind of – I know it sounds crazy, but corporates are so into their thing that they can't see the forest for the trees sometimes. Yeah, but this is the uh, – this is the – actually, because it's so hard for people to understand when someone like you are, even when someone like I am says – you know, these large corporations can't innovate because there's too much legacy, not just systems, but sort of systematic processes inside. And this is the perfect example of that in the sense that a startup would just say, okay, here's what we've been selling up until now, but let's just get another URL, put another brand on it and see what happens. And a corporation is like, you know, like I said, we've called ourselves, you know, the glass house company forever. Everything's got to be on our brand. It's like windows everywhere. And if we can't do that, what do we do? Like we're stuck. Yeah. And brand is so important, particularly to large MNCs from the West, you know, big multinationals from the West. Let's face it. They've spent decades and billions of dollars building a brand like Pantene, for example, or, you know, and so, uh, of course, it's, it's almost blasphemy to, to believe that the brand is not everything. Right. So, um, I'm curious, I'm curious for your opinion on this because I've had this concept that I've been developing over the last four or five years, that we live in a unique time. So if you go back to the early 1900s in the United States, you could create a brand called Coca-Cola. You could create a brand called Kodak out of nowhere. Like, they didn't exist before. And frankly, brands themselves were a new concept, yeah? And maybe my timing is wrong. Um, But today, you almost have the same opportunity to create a brand out of thin air. Because your distribution is so seamless and your ability to market is global and your markets are now global. So, and you're also dealing with, I think, brand overload to a certain extent where I hate to put people in categories, but millennials and just younger people in general are saying, I almost don't want to buy a branded item because I feel like I'm not getting the value that I'm supposed to get. And I almost (laughs) want to support people like I am. And I'm happy to... By a non-branded brand, do you see that? Is that like a crazy idea I have, or is that like is that valid? Oh, so yeah, it's very valid, Michael. And in fact, I can't get through three days without having that conversation with with somebody in the innovation sphere here in China, um, and meaning that everybody's coming to the same realization. And and it is an interesting moment in time. Uh, what's happening, at least in China, and I think in across in many places in Asia, I can't speak to the West because I've just been outside of it for so long. Right. But Same I can here. tell you that I can tell you that in Asia, um, the the demographic that looks at a brand and says, "Okay, that's that's a safer bet for me," because of the brand name, is rapidly declining. There are still those folks 50 years of age plus who may approach a purchase decision that way. Right. But at the, at the moment of purchase – and I do this, and I'm, I'm, I'm 50 this year, okay? Congratulations, so, by the way. <laughs> You're still younger I, than I uh, am, but – Well, and I, when I – so if I, last night, I, uh, I'm here in Shenzhen. I'm, a little, I'm away from home. Um, I didn't want to eat at the hotel. So I'm thinking, you know, some Korean barbecue sounds good. I'm on TripAdvisor checking out what's around right. and looking at the reviews. I'm not looking for a brand, my friend. I'm not looking for, you know, I'm looking for what, what, what is, is being recommended by the crowd. And that, or what is being recommended by the people that I know, that is far more 
relevant at the moment of purchase order in the purchase decision today than it was when everybody wanted to buy Coca-Cola, right? Right, Because yep. it was Coca-Cola. So that's changing dramatically and millennials are a big factor in that. And it, it's, it's only getting, it's only increasing in purchase decision-making influence. So now you can start a brand for, for very little price, right? And, and the, the social media and social commerce has, has enabled that. But at the same time, what's happened is that the importance of the brand in purchase decision has gone down drastically. And the importance of uh, social recommendation, be it friends or, or other influencers, key opinion leaders, etc., has increased. It has. They didn't really exist 20 years ago. And now that's a big part of what most of us, many of us look for before we make a purchase decision. Yeah. So, and you just, again, you're bringing up so many interesting concepts. So what do you think about this concept of a key opinion leader, right? So, because what you've just said leads me to believe that it's easier today to create a brand. So you can create a company in Hong Kong called Grana, right? We make the best t-shirts, we make the best new clothing. But then again, because it's a, now you have a new brand, the brand itself actually just gets grouped in with the other brands. And it seems to me like the brand value is maintained for a shorter period of time. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So you can create a new absolutely, one quickly. Yeah, absolutely correct. But then the yep. value is lower. Yep. Yeah. And so you have to be careful about how much you invest in, in, in that brand. Right. 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 Uh, and, and one could argue, you know, success is about creating, you know, being able to rapidly recreate or create multiple brands uh, focused on, perhaps different segments for a limited period of time. Right. But that's the, so this is the thing that I've been thinking about is, is that, you know, let's just say you're making a new clothing company and today you want to call it, you know, the banana company. You just run that out until it's done. And it's the same people creating new products, but you just create a different brand. And maybe that brand has a different personality, but you only want to create it. Maybe you just devise it to last for three years. That's it. Do you know what I mean? So you don't want to create something Absolutely. that lasts for 100 years like Coca-Cola or Disney because it gets stale or for whatever reason. But because the brand value is only maintained for a short period of time, you build it with that in mind. That seems to me to be a really interesting concept. Well, it, it's absolutely but hard uh, to do, right? Well, that's the thing. Somebody's going to figure out how to do that at, at, a, at the right price point, so to speak, or with the right amount of energy and do it efficiently. And redo it. And, and that's a skill set, you know, leveraging social commerce and key opinion leaders to to quickly go to market uh, with a brand is a skill set now. It is. And 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 that's it. The the big guys aren't catching on to that. Uh, they, they're catching on to social media. I don't think they're quite catching on to what I call social commerce or what is called social commerce, which is selling goods through social media. Right. And and how to really do that and this notion of leveraging uh, influencers and key opinion leaders and you, you hit the nail on the head, Michael. There, yeah, what's the lifespan of a key opinion leader? Right. They're, they're really short, right? Very so short. to some some extent, and 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 now in China, I, I can't speak again to the West where Facebook seems to survive. Um, in in China, the the social media platform that's most respected for being at the leading edge of opinion is changing, right? Changes. So it's not always WeChat. It will be something else uh, in the next few years. And so um, 
keeping up with that means creating new brands. Um, and instead of, are you still there? I'm here. Yeah. I'm listening. You say creating new brands instead of, and, yeah, I'm sorry. Instead of, um, you know, moving your brand from one key opinion leader to another, right. it's probably more applicable or more appropriate to just create a new brand with a new opinion. Leader. So that's the thing. And I'm sorry if it sounded like I wasn't there, but I'm like rapidly sort of iterating this idea in my mind as we're speaking. And that is not only is FMCG, right? So let's translate that for people that don't know what it means, but fast moving consumer goods, right? That fast moving is actually one of the innovations that you would actually point out probably, um, in the fashion space, but in other consumer goods spaces, right? Is that like, you know, this shampoo is only going to be valid for two years. We're going to make it, market it out, wring all the profit out of it, and then create a new piece of consumer good. It could have the same contents in it, but it's a different set. Like all these things really matter. But maybe there's an entire business model to be built around. You tell me because you're better at this than I am. Maybe there's a business model to be built around, you know, Products that don't you don't expect to be around for a long time, super high quality, with a brand that you think is going to be around for two or three years through an opinion-leading um, mechanism that's slightly ephemeral. And then when that's all over and done with, you just like wash, rinse, repeat. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Somebody will figure out how to do that really well. And and they'll just they'll just turn that machine, right? And it Because yeah. it's a skill set, right? As you describe it. You're exactly right. It's a skill set that you could reapply multiple times in multiple different uh, categories. Uh, and so how, whoever gets good at that, and it's very unlikely to be a, a big, fast-moving consumer goods company. They're just so far away from this. Yeah, they are. But it, it, somebody may get good at this and sell that service to fast moving consumer good. But then again, you know, the, the last thing they want to do is give up on their brand. They, they, they're hundreds of years or a hundred years into brand building. You know, that's what P and G does. Right. And they're darn good at it. Um, to expect them to suddenly give that up and say, you know, that's not really important anymore. It's just a lot to ask. There's it so is, much psychological inertia. It is. But I think, I think you've actually pointed out a real gap in this market. Um, and sorry to use your own terminology, but I use that term a lot as well. And I think there's a, I think there's a big opportunity in like a really nimble and agile management team and also operations team to just look around, pick a really popular product or a product that everybody needs. You can have it be shampoo or toothpaste and just like innovate around the sort of creation, marketing, distribution of that product and then let it go away because the thing about, like you said, Procter and Gamble or you know Unilever is that they're just constantly making tiny changes, and in every market, you know the same toothpaste is sold with a different name or a slightly different combination of ingredients, but it's really the same. And I think consumers are getting tired of that, and I think that's why FMCG is just like sort of an interim step. But the next step is to shorten that process even more, but to also eliminate a brand. Like as soon as it becomes slightly stale, it's just gone, and just do something yeah. else. In other words, you don't have to. I think there's value in saying, you don't even have to say it explicitly, you just do it when it's right. There's no more Coca-Cola, and that's a bad example, but you know, there's no more Product X, and we're just going to shut that down and start over again. And in a way, the consumer doesn't even know, need to know that the team is the same, the marketing team is the same, <laughs> or the operations team is the same, because as the long as the product is amazing, yeah? Because yeah. like you said, 
I can literally go online today, buy a website that's, and I'm going to use the thing we had before, you know, Marty's company, and just say Marty's stuff, and just say that's what we're calling it today. And in two years from now, that whole business is gone. And then we're going to call it Michael's stuff, and nobody would know the difference. Yeah, I totally agree. You you know where I'd look for for early adopters of this, and you're already starting to see exactly what you're talking about a little bit, Michael, in in, in a couple of segments, um, supplements like yeah. You know, uh, or functional foods, you know, places where uh, there people are are willing to buy this stuff online. Okay, it's it might be a little fatty, you know, F A D fad e, but it's it's not big brand usually. Um, It's specific functionality or at least perceived functionality, Uh, and key, key opinion leaders can be very influential. Or or there's there's some social commerce influence stuff. I think those guys are going to, that's a sector like that supplements or functional food is going to naturally iterate its way towards this competency, this capability. And, and they'll start doing this new brand. Okay. It's basically the same kind of thing or slightly modified thing, or it's, you know, this supplement instead of that supplement, that's the popular one right now. Let's go make some some quick change in that area uh but the 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 capability that they're developing and the way they approach driving sales and volume is applicable to yeah. many other areas it is so but that's the other thing too is that once and i want to get back to this i really wanted to spend more time talking to you about this so maybe we'll have to do like another episode but this whole concept of innovate we haven't spent any time on this but this is really interesting to me too we've kind of been on the fringes it's like innovation as a skill set right so how do you how do you go and teach that right and you mentioned way at the beginning of this conversation that there was sort of a cultural gap in the way innovation took place and now that you've been doing this for 20 something years right two decades how do you go out and teach innovation and it seems like a really interesting space because again that's also changing and again it's very meta right like you're innovating inside the, an innovation space but like mm. how do you teach that i guess that's a is that a lot of what you your team does now that is all of what we do and and we're constantly asking ourselves how to get better at that so that that's exactly what emerge innovation is all about michael it's about teaching building a sustainable and scalable capability to do this again and again and I often tell the the folks and the, the teams and people that I work with, you know, my job is to to be unnecessary, right, to you, in in twelve months, right? Yeah, I, that's I want, a success, right, for you. Exactly, exactly. And and you know, I I know a business person might look at that and say, well, Marty, you've you've got you've got a longevity problem there, right? <laughs> no, but, no, you don't, because because you, you've got a reputation um, benefit for that. Like well, we, we hired that guy for twelve months, and it like radically changed our business. That's that's sales and marketing writ large, right? Exactly, and oh, that's how we've grown. That is, I mean, we just don't do our website is so so, so bad. <laughs> we just don't do product. We don't do business development much. It's all word of mouth, right? And it works wonderfully, right? So, but it is it, it the answer to the question: How do you teach people how to do this? Is very interesting. If there was a simple, uh, let's say curriculum pedagogy that you could hand every HR director in China would have bought it and implemented it by now. It's, it's the, it's a lot like how do you get good at, at throwing free throws? 
You yeah, go but, out there and throw three right. And that's the point that I was trying to make is that I didn't even want to ask the question. I kind of wanted to let you say it. There's no fixed curriculum to teach those skill sets, right? And, you know, are you throwing the ball underhand? Is that the best way to do a free throw? Are you doing it overhand? You know, are you using your left, your right? Like, you're right. It's different every time. But that means that your job is fascinating, no? Oh, it's 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 wonderful, and I love the analogy because you know if you're if you're six foot ten and above, you know you definitely don't want to be underhanding it. But if you're if you're four six, that may be the right approach, right? Yeah, so the so right arc, yeah. The, yeah. So the 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 part of our skill set is to be able to understand what is this, what's the core capability and competency of the organization, the teams, and the people that we're working with, and how can we help them find the innovation mechanism that works for them. And one of the reasons why this is still really uh, sought after in the marketplace, Michael, is that the copy-paste approach doesn't work. No, it Even doesn't. when I, I I did a project for Cisco, where uh, as a, as their senior innovation architect, where the first part of my job was to design an innovation capability program for uh, their global services business. And, and then the second part of it was go implement that program. And I can tell you that even within the same company, in different organizations within that company, the, the approach was different. The way that we enabled them and the, and the process, the specific process that they used, even within Cisco, was different from Cisco in North America to Cisco in Europe right. uh, to two divisions of Cisco in Europe, for example. It, it, it's not the same uh, system in each case it needs to be modified to the culture of the organization and the country or, or the geography yeah and I think one of the major takeaways for me is that there is a massive cultural difference not just between countries but between you know divisions and individuals and just making the point as you said earlier that there really is no way to have like you, you can't have a fixed curriculum of innovation and then just go out and you know, have somebody sign up for it online and then it just, it's like a, <clears throat> you know, it's like an annuity that just keeps paying for itself. Like the, maybe the best thing about what you do from my perspective is that, and what your team does, um, is that you get to go into a situation, learn a ton about it and say the only, you know, not the only way, but here's a great way to innovate internally. And this is, you know, bespoke created thing just for you and your teams. And you could literally like go down three floors, like you said, in Cisco to the same company and do something completely differently because that's the only way they're going to be able to innovate. Exactly. And, and we use our kit to do it, right? So we, we, we pivot, right? We have a hypothesis. We, we pull out the best stuff that we can think of to work in this organization, this moment in time, and we give it a try. We run an experiment. We realize, okay, this part of that worked, but this part didn't. Let's tweak that part. And, and through iteration, we come up with something that works. So that's the only, you know, there are PricewaterhouseCoopers, Deloitte, Bain, McKinsey, they all have their kit. Right. And you know what? You can talk to the corporates and the people at the street level, so to speak, you know, the director level that's got to go get this done. And they'll all tell you, yeah, you know, it's, it's good content, but it's not delivering sustainable business results. You know, we've tried it. And, and it, it's not giving us what we want. I'm not saying it's not any good, but something's missing. Right. So it, it's it's because it, for McKinsey to scale, uh, they need a standard kit that they can train relatively young, uh, you know, consultants to go out and deploy. That's their business model. That's how they scale. Right. Um, we're a little bit different. We're uh, the people that we 
hired to work for us are, you know, 20 plus years experienced people who've been out there as practitioners who, who can tweak and modify. And for that reason, you know, we can only handle so much business. We're not going to be a hundred million business in, in five years or 10 years. Right. So the, and the comment I was going to make important. was, the comment I was going to make was you're not worried about scaling. Exactly. Right? So this is the, and this is a real, but this, and this brings up the same conversation we were having 15 minutes ago. And that was, the brand of McKinsey is really great, right? You know, Anderson Consulting, Absolutely. you've heard of them all. These are great companies, but their kit is predicated on scale. Yep. Right. It's, and they don't do the meta innovation inside the innovation space that your teams can do for a whole host of reasons. And again, this gets back to one of my other concepts of, and I talk about this in the, in the space of retail, right? I'll run through it really quickly. It's a longer conversation, but you know, in the old days, there was Main Street and there was a haberdasher there, right? And there was a shoe store and there was, <clears throat> you know, a butcher. And yep. over time, that just developed because it couldn't scale. It couldn't handle thousands of, it couldn't make thousands of suits a week. And all this sort of ended up in a department store, right? Yeah. And then there was Macy's and Bloomingdale's or whatever. And that was where all the great stuff was. And yet over time, people would go in there and say, it's just, I can't deal with it. They're not, it's not good enough for me anymore. And then it came full circle to, I want to go back to a boutique. And I think the same thing is happening globally across all brands and all products and all services. And that is, you know, when McKinsey first started, they were your size. And that's why they kicked yeah. it because <laughs> that's why they kicked it though, because they and they thought they'd found a secret sauce, but the reality is, and it's not just McKinsey, I'm not picking on any particular company, but I like to make the equivalency between sort of, you know, the main street haberdasher, you know, Macy's and Bloomingdale's sorry to be, and Nordstrom's. Yeah. Sorry to be so provincial. But then going back to saying, I just want to buy a suit from the guy or the gal that's making the suit. Yeah. And that's what you're yeah. doing, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's, it, this ties back to the, the conversation to some extent around, you know, how did I become an entrepreneur? Um, the, the more time I spend in this ecosystem and understanding what you just said, Michael, about the, you know, the, the, the mass market version Right. of the product or service, I, I'm starting now to see that equate back to the individual. Yeah. And, and I, I do believe, we'll see, but I believe in the next 20 years or so, the ideal candidate and best value for a corporate uh, employee, so to speak, or the, the, the individual in a corporate that's adding value need not necessarily be and perhaps should not be a full-time employee of that corporate. Agreed completely. And that was, that's the point I'm trying to get to always is that, you know, we can talk about how there's a massive secular and paradigm change in work, but it, 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 it sort of illustrates itself through all of the little things that you and I have been discussing and it manifests itself at the end in what's my job. Exactly. Exactly. And, and what's my value proposition? You know, what's the right. value proposition of Marty Daphner? Right. Uh, when I, when I left the corporate world, it became very, very clear to me that that was job security. That it was, my job security was not about working for a big corporate that doesn't fire people very often. Right. That's not job security. Uh, job security is I know what I do and why I'm differentiated in a specific niche versus my competition. And I know how to find my target customer right. for what I do. Right. And if you if you know that, if you know what you do better than just about anybody else, and you know who values that, you'll always have work. Yeah. So 
here's another. So I'll, I want to leave you, and I'll let you go because you've spent a lot of really super generous time, actually, and I've loved this conversation. But I want to leave you with this. I have a friend, Ricardo Tosani. I use this example all the time offline. Ricardo mm-hmm. is um, an urban planner, urban designer, and a, you know, basically a world-renowned architect. And yet, that's not his job. <laughs> okay, it's his life. In other words, he couldn't. He doesn't want to do anything else, right? He's not using it as a stepping stone to something. It's in him. That's his value add. He may argue with me, but I doubt it. But the point is that, like, just like you said, you realize that your security and your value add was not being at a big corporation and getting a monthly paycheck. It was all the things you know and things you could value add on your own. And that I like to use him as an example because he's creating physical things and they're constantly changing. But the idea of that, that being his job is anathema to what he's doing. That's his life. He couldn't do anything else. It, and it, it consumes everything that he does, too, in a good way, not in a bad way. Um, and I think that the world has to move more to that. Like you said, what's your value add? And are you adding yeah. it at this company at this time and then at this company at another time? And a full-time work is really a strange concept, actually. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I, I hope that by the time I have two boys, they're only five years old, twin boys, I hope that by the time they're in the job market, that it is more like what you've just described, that yeah. people do what, they're, what, they're, what they love to do. Here, here's, here's why it's such a good fit. If you're doing what you love, you're going to be good at it. Yeah. You're going to get good at it because you just love to do it. Right. And then people will say, okay, I need somebody who's really good at this. They're going to they're gonna find you. Yeah. If you know where to find them, you guys will find each other. And then you keep doing what you love. You keep getting better at it. It, it just – there's – it's a self-perpetuating cycle. And that's what I want. I want for my children that they do something they love to do. Yeah. And, and look, I'll leave you with one more thing. I think no individual day is fatal for anybody. And as long as you're kind of making forward progress and you've seen this in your own sort of business development, you're succeeding. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay. Look – Marty, can I call you Marty? I've been calling you Martin the Please, whole time. I do full names yeah. just because I, I, you know, we don't know each other that well. But look, I really want to thank you so much for your time. This has been an amazing conversation. This is why we do this. We do this so we can share experiences, transformations, and conversations like yours. And people can hear it and, and be inspired by it. Anyway, I really want to thank you so much. My pleasure. It's been a, been a pleasure to chat with you as well, Michael, and, and learn a little bit from you and your experience. Thank you again. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.